Before we get into today's episode, we wanted to give you a heads up that this podcast has some heavy-hitting topics, conversations, and opinions. So yes, we welcome any and all feedback, but just a reminder, you are choosing to listen to this and you can choose not to agree. Okay, now that that's out of the way, let's fuck small talk. Hey guys, welcome to the next episode of season two. Uh, this episode is really special to us because we have our amazing friend who we have a ton of history with on the episode and it's a long time coming. His name is Maz and he's a dear friend to us both. Maz works in politics and has an incredible story to share about his immigrant experience. So in today's episode, we'll be talking a little bit about the immigrant experience, what we feel Canada's identity is now and what we think Canada's identity will be moving forward. Enjoy. As you take a sip of coffee, I was just about to toss it over to you for the classic fuck small top question of how do you know us? Oh, and also you can, yeah, say your name would be great. Okay, well. <laughs> full, full name, please. Middle name as well. Okay, well, let me start with my full legal name, yep. which is Maz Muhammad Iftikharuddin Yassin. Okay, and then now your social insurance number? <laughs> <laughs> um, I go by Maz Yassin or Maz. Uh, and Maz is not short for anything. But um, how do I know you guys? So uh, let's go uh, back to the beginning. <laughs> yeah, I think so. With, with Danny, I like actually remember mm-hmm. how I met you. What the is like a more hazy, <laughs> <laughs> like a it's cloud hazy. of mystery. It's what, hazy one for us too. So <laughs> yeah. I, like, why do you just not? <laughs> this is just how it happens for me. I'm just around one just day, and then you guys are like people's pe- lives. Yeah, I just I just appear, and then I just stay. I just stick around. <laughs> You're like, oh yeah, I guess okay, he's here now. <laughs> So I was a student at the University of Waterloo, and I was getting involved with student government and our student union, which was at the time called the Federation of Students. And will now be referred to as FEDS for the rest of this episode. Uh, and so uh, I, was, I was working for the VP education at the time, and Danielle was hired as a co-op, uh, right? Yes. Whoa. For yes. that semester as an advocacy coordinator. Yes. I remember your title. I, wow. I didn't um, know that. And I was, the really acad- good I was the academic affairs commissioner. And, and this was way back in 2012. Was it 2012? It was 2012. Oh, wow. wow. That's, that's long ago. Yep. I was in grade 12. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Ako taco. Um, okay. Well, this, move, this, guy, this guy was a like commissioner. <laughs> this guy was a commissioner. I'm just sitting there. <laughs> so my job was to like sort of uh, try to advocate on like identify like academic issues that students across the board at UW were facing and to try to bring them to the attention of the executive uh, and like the stuff that I was doing the their sort of end goal was to was for all, a lot of that stuff to be institutional advocacy so like advocating to the u- university as opposed to other uh, levels of government and Danielle who was like the person hired by Adam to sort of keep us all three in check and sort of monitor progress yeah, and he, then i also did like any events based on advocacy on campus i was the coordinator for actually running them so it was a cool portfolio because i had events plus i it was my first real taste of politics to then w- our next phase of our friendship was uh was the student union exec yeah so like we ended up running an election together. and i remember the moment that Moz told me he wanted to run with me and it was really cute and intense and i feel like that was the first moment i was like oh my god we're real friends <laughs> i was like very nervous when i told you that i know yeah so so with danny i sort of shared that like pre-student union like experience when I, when I was like when i knew that she wanted to go in that direction and like becoming friends but also like knowing that my maybe like a strategic alliance with Danielle would be how I get elected to student <laughs> government. <laughs> like it was like a house of cards thing. And and then like I think we just became friends and then and here we are, still friends. I know, it's crazy. Six, five, six years, I don't know how many years seven, it's been. Seven. Seven. Two thousand and twelve to two thousand and nineteen. Almost twenty twenty. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Good time. Ashay <laughs> <laughs> popped up in my life. Yeah. And yeah. and like didn't leave no matter and, how. I and like genuinely you think I grabbed you and just like threw you into my group. That yeah, sounds right. That sounds right. My first time meeting Moz, um, you were in a toga or like a Roman costume for some reason at one of Danny's parties. 
Oh, and I so, remember this. And so was Paula. And then I just remember at one point we'd been talking throughout the night. And then at one point, me and Paula were both asleep on Maz, who was also <laughs> asleep. Like you were sitting in the middle of us on the couch yeah. and Paula was asleep on one of your shoulders. You were asleep just with your head straight back and I was asleep on the other shoulder. And that's not a reflection at how lame my parties are. <laughs> no, no, it was late. That's we were tired. Just, it was no, it's a like... reflection of how good her parties are. <laughs> yeah, we were... Because you were that lit. You just snuggled yeah. up and you were like, this is good. <laughs> and that was my first time meeting Moz. That's insane. I weaseled my way into his life. <laughs> and I have to say, in, in, a, in a weird way, it's been like really cool to have in what has generally been like a lot of uh, white friends to yep. have like a person I can like speak my language, my like mother tongue to <laughs> and just like in a random like you start talking in Hindi to each other. Yeah. So I feel like there's like a connection that I have with you that I'm not really able to have with other people. Yeah. Uh, not that like. No, I get it. I have like a lesser of a connection <laughs> with you, Danny. But we yeah, have our own language. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cute. And I'm really happy when friends that i've introduced get along so well Mm -hmm. because i also feel just nice that it's like oh these like two great people like i'm happy they also click because Mm -hmm. i have a habit of just sort of throwing friends together and being like this should work and it's cool when it does your sense is pretty good though like I'm, i'm struggling to think of examples where you've done that and it hasn't worked out yeah um Yes. So I'm really happy that we all met in a really cute way that has built to a really intense friendship. Mm-hmm. And I hope this comes through on the episode that we just like really know each other so well. <laughs> yeah. And we're just like all holding hands and <laughs> and really happy to be here. But we're holding hands right now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, Your hands you are all sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> You're just surprisingly hard. clammy. I'm not, it's very, <laughs> <we're> not, <laughs> yeah, people often say that to me. That's actually a fact. Is that actually true? Yeah, I have really poor circulation, but I also am really warm all the time. Oh, so it comes yeah. across in like really clammy hands. It's not oh, great. Yeah. 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 Let's move on for it's the fine, moment. It's fine. Yeah, it's all good. We don't have to go on a hands tangent, I don't yeah. think. No. But <laughs> I really enjoy like, because when you get to be friends with somebody for so long, you get to see sort of like the newness of what who we are as people like we were just little babies like when we started warrior tribe and then when we started in feds thinking we were like hot shit but we (laughs) actually had no fucking idea what we were doing and we're just blindly like bouncing through everything just like Mm -hmm. trying so hard so it's really cool now to see how legit we've actually become and we're only sorry you're really young okay (laughs) but we're we're like in our late. You're mentally mature. We're in our late twenties, and you're just coming into your mid twenties. Like, as our friendship matures, I mature with it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that how much you're mature? No, but yeah, yeah, yes, I am. I am a youth in this <laughs> setting. No, but even like, but from I think when we've grown a long way, all yeah. of us. Like where we were, it's been a glow up. Let's put it that way. It's been a lot of growth. Yeah, and we've gone through like a lot of. Yeah. Events yes. Friendships. Yes. We all have been with each other on like rough times and like in t- intense moments that we've then seen each other recover, mm-hmm. then become stronger, and then moving forward from there. It's been really cool. One experience I don't have with you, Maz, is I've never actually worked with you on anything. Like with Danny, we had Warrior Tribe, and then we have this podcast, but I don't think I've ever actually worked with you on anything. And I, th- I know from I what I can see. I hear a business opportunity. And I have a pitch for you. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, I, I, but from what I can see, everything I can see, work is a really big uh, part of who you are. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I feel like it's a blind spot in my perception of you. I have a feeling and like, oof, maybe this is about to get super deep, super fast. <gasps> yes. But we like that shit. I think like, I know I have been like very... Not, not present uh, like in any of my friends' lives in the, over the past few months, but I have a feeling that especially you and I have like a very a lot of potential in our in our, <laughs> Ooh, I love in, our yeah. uh, in our friendship growth. And, yeah, I and do. I think that like that could involve a lot of other things. I think um, just like the path you're on, like professionally and like what I'm doing. There's a lot of potential intersections to it. Oh, and, tons. And I think you are entrepreneurial, and I think of myself as an, entre- an, as an entrepreneurial person, too. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we end up like working with 
each other yeah. on something like really big. You know, I haven't thought about that, but then as soon as you said that, it just clicked in my head that that's yeah. very true. We've been geographically and scheduling wise challenged yeah. to grow our friendship in that way. Yeah. But I absolutely, yeah. No, the more I think about it, I think the the bulk, the be- the best parts of our friendship are definitely ahead of it for us. Oh. For sure. <laughs> I'm excited. That's so cute. Yeah. That was great. And like, I'm not saying that because like I need to say it on a podcast, but I've like thought this many times and uh, I think I've said it. it's it's a shame that like you and I haven't been able to spend a lot of time together. Uh, and I think it's a side effect of we really got to know each other while after I had already left. And like the reason I see like a lot more potential is because uh, and like this wouldn't come to as a surprise to anybody like even my colleagues in ottawa listening to this i ottawa is not a permanent home for me oh sur- surprise Moz works in politics <laughs> <laughs> breaking news here um so I, I don't see myself in ottawa like all my life and i plan to eventually come to this part of come back to this part of ontario and sooner or later we, we will be like in closer proximity and much more able to develop our friendship. I'm excited. Yeah. Oh, that I was really sweet. I'm excited. I love this foreshadowing. I have a follow-up question for you, Danny. Okay. Do you feel like Maury Povich on the show where they found out that somebody is the father and like this is like a little bit we're the people and then you're more <laughs> or like more like Oprah and it's like a family reunion or like you know what I mean? Like Maz is the soldier coming home from like Afghanistan. And I'm the son that hasn't seen him in like three months. Do you feel like that right now? A little bit. Like, I do feel like I'm... But Maury doesn't really have a connection with the guests. He just, right. like, pokes in, like, prods and yeah, yeah. causes shit. And like, maybe it's, name. like... Uh, this is going to be a weird analogy because we're not dating either of you, but, like, my main piece is meeting my side piece. Like, it's just, like... <laughs> <laughs> like, and, th- and then they're hitting it off, and then it's, like, oh, we're just going to be a incestual group. <laughs> good analogy all right Uh, yeah also wait you pointed at me as a i know i was like i was was wondering whether i should clarify to the audience (laughs) that uh, who who was pointed at for the main page yeah if if you did it it seems mean if you clarify and and it's it's mainly timeline based not not person person based um it's gonna be a weird transition from an ancestral comment so you were talking about KW to Ottawa to coming back to KW and like I know both of you have expressed that you did have a sense of home feeling in KW like based on both your relationships started here. I just think that there's a lot of potential to feel that sort of nostalgic home feeling when you come back here and I know I haven't left so I continue to feel like this is home. But I wonder because home for me is often I've talked about this on past episodes is often more like just a feeling so I wonder like I know this is a bit of context for our listeners because I know you uh so well but you've moved a lot and your family has moved a lot have Mm -hmm. like do you struggle with maybe struggle is the wrong word how how have you felt at home in the different places and like do you feel a sense of like your childhood home or like childhood home feeling not necessarily a physical space with your parents it's a really good question Mm -hmm. I have constantly sort of had this struggle of i would call it an, an identity crisis but like I, as part of that there's this constant like lack of clarity about what home is mm-hmm. um because i was born uh and brought up in in the middle east and in, in saudi arabia actually lived the initial first few years of my life there and then we immigrated here not to kw but to uh mississauga lived there for a few years and then uh became canadians and uh and and eventually moved back to the middle east because that's where my dad's work took our family and then i came back to kw for university uh so it was like a pretty long period i think it was like seven eight years that i lived Mm -hmm. uh in the region before i went to ottawa for my new job and that was the longest constant staying in one place that Mm. i think i've had in my whole life Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, have you struggled to feel a sense of stability in anywhere except Waterloo? Is that kind of... Yeah, I think, like, so right now, I'm, I'm here in Kitchener-Waterloo, and it, like, it kind of feels, the way I describe here is, like, it feels like my Canadian home. Um, hmm. And, like, home can be many things. Like, home is where my apartment is. And home is also sometimes, like, home can also be where your family is. And they're back uh, in the Middle East right now, and it's 
obviously like when you're with them it feels like home but for me like as far as the hometown is concerned this feels as close as a hometown can come to it I guess that's really cool and you've met so many different kinds of people like as you've traveled around um and gone to different schools and I know you said you like went to private schools and stuff and like even something as small as like your accent has migrated through the experiences yeah. that you've had um in good ways and bad ways yeah but something that I noticed that all three of us do in different ways from different experiences is we do this cool thing of when we meet new people we try our best to go I'm going to make you feel like this is a comfortable environment and give you space to exist here. And that sounds intense, but that can be as small as like talking to an Uber driver or meeting a new person at an event. And mm. we bring different things. Like I definitely, I hope this is what comes across that. I want to be like, everything you're saying is, has validity. Like I don't want people to think like I've, I'm using an Uber driver example here, but I've, especially as a white lady, uh, I've been an Uber vehicle and there's no music on and I'm like do you want to put the radio on like you can put your music on and they're like oh like I don't have any English music and I'm like like I'm like I want you to put on your music like this is your vehicle and I want to give you space and that's something that's really important to me in my friendships with people is like mm -hmm. you get as much space as I do mm -hmm. and um with you speaking so many languages I have seen you do it and again this is an uber example I don't know why uber is so I relevant here a lot where you will like hear the accent that they have and you'll just start speaking in that language as like a hope this works, but mm -hmm. it does such a good job of immediately people feel like so comfortable and like they have a space. And I knew, I know you, Ashe, like also do this really amazing job of being like, I'm hearing and listening to you right now and you get space to like talk and share your experiences and you just like let people share stories in such a active listening way that's just amazing. So I think all three of us, like it's so crucial to our who we are as people, but we've crafted it so much better over time. Would you agree at that assessment from my perspective? Yeah. Yeah, and, I would agree. And I anything agree. to add of like, that is part of who you are? I would, I mean, I would definitely say that that's something that I've seen us all try to do. And sometimes when I'm in India and people are talking to me, you know, like when people who are from India are speaking English, they, the, the, the accent is kind of weird and oh. different. Yes. I <laughs> I hop between the way I'm speaking now and the Indian way of mm -hmm. speaking English mm -hmm. in front of them. And it just half a sentence will be one way and half a sentence will be the other way. I'm like, is this rude or like, what the fuck yeah, is this? Yeah, is I'm it I'm trying rude? to make sure you understand. Like, I, I, I get that. And I, so I think that's also where some of that might be coming from for you. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, I, I think, Daniel, you're absolutely right. I, I, it is like, it's been a thing, like I've been brought up with this and my, my dad does it too, where it's like almost a sign of respect and making other people feel comfortable like by you making the effort to like speak their language yeah. or speak the way yep. they speak um but like especially on the india thing that you were mentioning Ashay, i like as early as a few months ago when i was there in june or in december when i was in kerala uh which is a state in the southern part of india because there's a lot of tourists from north america there and mm -hmm. i was like oh, i'm just gonna speak like a normal speak i don't want to like indianify my English because that might be rude. That might they might see that as like me again mocking them or being rude. So I spoke the normal way I speak, but sometimes they wouldn't understand it. I and know. like I remember being in a restaurant at like one of these resorts or whatever, and uh, and like I asked the guy a question, and he's like, "Pardon me," and like he wasn't understanding, and I was like, I just switched to Indian English. I was like, "Oh, I asked, uh, where is the toilet?" And he's like, "Oh, yeah." There. Yeah, I yeah. was like, so it. I don't know. It, it, like, I feel like sometimes it's actually not offensive to do it. It, it just. I, you, yeah, I'm not doing it from a mocking perspective. I'm doing it to to be understanding and like have a better yeah. connection with that person, yeah. like you said. Yeah. But no, absolutely. It's <laughs> that's yeah. that's so that's so true about who we are. I have a question for you. In that, do you think that's all? You mentioned it's part of what your dad taught you, but do you think it's also something that you started doing? as a way to feel more connected to where you are? Because you did move around a lot and you did, um, you are constantly in a state where you're, I feel like you're meeting a lot of new people all the time and mm -hmm. you're kind of always on the go. Does that help you to feel more connected or find more roots or just? Yeah, I, I think, I think so. Yes. I, uh, I see myself as like a bridge builder, so to say, like, mm. I think you would, Danny would yep. attest to the fact that I like to sort of, 
mediate and I try to like I like to like sort of find common ground and as part of that it, it really comes down to like that the way that applies to human interaction is you want to sort of like make them feel that hey we've got something in common and if I can speak their language um, and even if I can't do it well I will still make an effort just like a word or phrase I think goes yeah. a long way yeah like I remember when I was in Switzerland and spoke a few sentences of German with someone there and they were like so happy and they knew I didn't actually speak German but they like appreciated the effort and like they helped us uh, we were like trying to find a farm in the mountains and they were like super helpful after that like little interaction whereas I think before they would have just seen us as a n normal tourist who has no clue where they're going and may not have been that helpful, I think. So I think it, it helped. I think it would naturally, that skill and being able to mediate and also being able to be like, okay, I'm going to acknowledge where you're coming from as a way to then move this conversation forward that can be applied to business and your work. And I know you like consulting or working with people mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, I'm going to take in all of the variables and then mm -hmm. provide an output or a best course of action. Right. And like in the job that you do, like that skill, like kind of has to be crucial. But like, did you know that you had that? Like just generally, I never thought I would be involved in, I, I never thought I'd end up working in government. Hmm. I never thought I'd work in politics. Um, I saw myself as someone who like I began in Waterloo in software engineering uh, and then I switched into econ uh, because I was not enjoying software engineering at all. Uh, it was considered a very radical and controversial move at the time by my family mm. uh, who are now supportive of it in hindsight. And like I eventually ended up where I am now, but and there's like a lot of like why I am where I am right now. But I think, yeah, a, a large part of it is... I think, like, when people talk about politics, it's, like, considered this, like, weird kind of evil, shitty, like, field <laughs> where, like, only bad people are involved. But I think it's so intertwined in everything we do. Uh, politics is essentially, like, uh, sort of leveraging what people want and trying to do things with it, right? And, uh, and I think there's, like, I felt that I could really do something with, Especially, uh, especially as someone with like a diverse experience, and I think that is very representative of of what Canada is. And I really wanted to be involved, uh, at, like in government. And so I think yes, there is an aspect of like where like you can connect me just wanting to speak a person's language to what I do right now in my like full time job, representing what the people mm. want you to do, yeah. uh, and translating that into policies of the government, right? So. Um, it's trying to find that like common ground between what people want and what makes sense in terms of policy. Yeah. Do you find that your ability, O'Shea, to do that with people has helped in your current work context or is it? Yeah, ab absolutely. I think a large part of the field that I work in is it being able to make connections but also understand needs and deliver on those needs. Yeah. Right. It, I know it's it's not in the same sense as politics, but I am a firm believer that if you can, especially with people like your counterparts or your teammates or the people that, who you report into, if you can anticipate needs, but like if you make a connection, learn uh, learn about them as a, as a person, yeah, and use that to anticipate needs and meet those needs, yeah, you can do any, you can go anywhere in the whether it be a corporate ladder, the political ladder, the you mm -hmm. know what I mean. You could you could the world is at your fingertips if you're able to do those couple things, yeah, and, and so I definitely have found that the more I've consciously tried to integrate that kind of thinking into my work, the better it's been for me. That's been a, that's been a relatively new mm -hmm. thing that I'm trying. I think it took me a while to kind of get my footing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now that I'm feeling more comfortable, uh, that's something I've kind of been pivoting towards. It's like, okay, how do I add value to the people around me? Mm -hmm. And that that's essentially the question yeah. you're asking yourself every day, right? Is how do I, and in politics, you're asking that, how do I add value to Canada? How do I add value to the Canadian people? Mm -hmm. And I think on a less macro level um that's something i do at work too and i think that's that's the same for you no yeah yeah i'm because i'm client facing like my entire the success of my job hinges on me being able to hear what the person is saying translate that into something we can then deliver back to them um but it's also like it's interesting 
holding that as a value in your work that that's an important skill to have like I think in university like we all took technical programs yeah very much so and you you just sort of and especially parent pressure like I definitely had that too where it's like you have to have this technical skill in order to be successful and if you don't have that you're going to fail yeah. and you're yep. going to be a disappointment <laughs> yeah, absolutely. so um I it, it, it took a while for me to translate from that to holding this as quite a value. Like it's really like because people is the center of my job. Like, yes, right. I have to be able to translate technical stuff or understand certain aspects. And I've worked in technical fields in the, uh, in the past, but like that is the center. That is the biggest thing I have to do is yeah. around people. And it's not something we, got taught in university i almost see it as two different parts of the equation like I, I see the value of understanding and learning a core set and then also expanding the set of technical skills that you know yeah um but i think moving as a go forward here's the, okay here's the way i see it yeah is that technical skills and learning more technical skills having them getting more those uh deal with your floor either getting technical skills set a floor gaining more technical skills raises your floor Ooh. But I think the soft skills, the anticipating needs, the people facing stuff, that raises your ceiling, right? And I think if you think Heck. about parents and how they're always trying to look at, they always want you to make sure that you're comfortable and the floor accomplishes that. Yeah. The risk is in, in the ceiling, right? And if you're, if you're entirely soft skills driven, yeah. then I think there is risk because your floor is very low, True. right? But I think getting the technical background, getting your floor to a place where you can be comfortable even if you did nothing, then you want to layer on the ceiling. And I think yeah. that's, that's the differentiator ultimately soft skills are a differentiator right yeah and that's where i think the value comes in and i think that's why it's so important all three honestly i could make an argument for any job yeah. any single oh, for career sure. profession whatever i'd say those skills are going to be a differentiator yeah and welcome to ashay's ted talk with his brilliant analogies like <laughs> every time that's actually very interesting you say that because i think like, pe when people come to Ottawa in, like, new jobs, especially new political jobs, working for members of parliament or ministers, uh, people, like, ask me, uh, hey, like, what makes a good politician or what makes a good, like, political advisor or political staffer? What you just said is essentially the crux of how I try to sort of frame it because in order to be a good politician or a good person who's working for a politician... I think you need to do two things really well and you need to sort of blend it together in in an elegant way. And if you're able to blend it together in, in an elegant way, I think that is a mark of like a very good politician or political staffer. And, and the two things are uh, to sort of, just as you said, anticipate the needs of your stakeholders or clients for government. It is your... It is the people of Canada, it's right? Constituents, yeah. yeah, it's your constituents. Whether it's like whether you're you're an MP from your riding, etc. You need to sometimes it's like easy to know where people are at on a particular issue because mm -hmm. you can see the results of the election and you're just like, yeah, well, like people overwhelmingly want government to take action on climate change or whatever. It's easy. Sometimes like on a very niche issue, it's harder to do so. And like, good politicians and good political advisors uh, are people that are just like intuitive enough to sort of understand where the where the sentiments are like how people are feeling uh, and and are able to sort of combine that with technical knowledge that they mm -hmm. have on the policy issues so if it's about gun control for example being able to like sort of have that intuition and th that is like aided by actual consultation and like all those like good things, uh, like actual interactions with people and stuff. But but to be able to sort of take that and then combine it with what the experts are saying, what the research is showing, what the scholarly like academics uh, have written on like gun control policies, sort of blend the two together uh, to create good policy is it is what makes a good politician and and i think that like fundamentally that like sort of approach applies to yeah. so many different fields that house analogy of using soft skills plus the technical knowledge and how we each have had to negotiate in different aspects of our lives could be used for evil like it could this sandwich effect of like understanding people well enough with a bit of technical knowledge we could definitely and I've seen us all do it, bulldoze people into doing what we want. <laughs> so I wonder like how, 
and I can answer this question too, um, but like how have we stayed true to our values in that we don't consistently use it for bad and for evil where we're like bulldozing people, not actually checking in. We override things again, just to further our agenda. Like we're all young people who are fairly successful for our ages and we could bulldoze our way to the top kind of thing. So I remember when I got the job in Ottawa, uh, before I like went, before I like, I, I don't know if, I, if this was before I took, I accepted the offer or before I left. Um, I had, I had a, a lunch with, with someone. He was our consultant at the student union and he helped us with our governance. But I remember that w- the one piece of advice he gave me and like to this day, I think it was so important and it sort of is always at the back of my mind uh, throughout the time I've been in politics in Ottawa. And the advice was, don't forget to be a human being. Uh, don't love that. Don't be a dick. Uh, be a good person and um, and do what you do, and like it'll be great. And I think that is so important because yeah, it like the skills you have, um, like interpersonal skills and uh, the ability to sort of. I don't want to use the word manipulate because it sounds like evil. Uh, it doesn't. It has a negative connotation, but the ability to like finesse, yeah, it can be used for self-serving goals. It can be used to eventually undermine someone without them even knowing it. You sort of like trick them into certain situations, and and I after after having been involved in this line of work for a few years now, like I think people see through that if you are being. Um, like a trickster if you are if you if you have habit of like undermining people or sort of manipulating them and tricking them into uh for self-serving reasons i think you your success will be short-lived i think you have to be a good person who people see as like doing something for good reasons uh, in order for your success to be more sustainable and longer lasting yeah yeah i i have I have very similar thoughts. Like I, I love, love what Brad said about don't forget to be a human being because yeah. I completely agree. And when you think about what makes a person a good leader, and I've had the pleasure of being around tons of good leaders, even amongst my own friend group uh, in my career and my life, uh, really transformative, inspirational leaders. And if you think about what differentiates them or even just your day-to-day interactions with the people around you, I've been around people who are the smartest in the room by a, by a long shot. I've been around people who have moved through organizations quicker than most. And the people that are the most memorable and make the most impact are the ones who develop the most trust. I think trust is extremely important. And the ones who treat people differently. I think, the dif- I think what you remember, what makes your mark is how you treat people. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily, especially as you move up and, and get more and more... Um, responsibilities in your life and your career it's it that's the differentiator a lot of people can do the work but it's how you treat people ultimately your legacy is going to be defined by how you treated people not what you did yeah uh per se i agree with both of you on trust and um connection and and just remembering your humanity as you talk to people and and want to further you can further an agenda and still treat people as humans as well um and something for me that i think is crucial to what i've brought into this and not being an evil person and a dick it's the reason I wanted to start this podcast was I love hearing people's stories I love hearing why people are the way they are because of their life experiences and remembering when I'm talking to people that they have a whole story I don't know is really helpful in me treating them as human beings and building that trust it's and it's really also checking my own privilege or um biases to be able to be like okay to treat you as a human being to build that trust to further this shared goal that i'm curating here i want to hear your story so that i'm not bulldozing you like it's definitely a tactic i've used to to make sure i'm not bulldozing people because they have a a story to tell as well Uh, yeah i think that's clear in the way you treat people i i I have a follow-up question for maz and the question is is that have you found that part of the reason you work and function the way you do is because of your experience uh, and your background? Or does that not play a part really for you in in the way you function? Uh, No, absolutely. I think 
my experience is I don't know how to like agree with you in an emphatic way that that is uh, that is absolutely true because when you when you sort of like go around and like live in different places and are truly never feeling at home the best you can do is to try and as we were saying earlier on is to try and feel at home and make whatever connection you can make with the people you're with and like that sort of that desire incentivizes the whole idea of finding common ground mm -hmm. with people and uh and that in itself is a good thing and and you are essentially like in finding common ground it allows you to develop relationships that that normally you would have no reason to sort of try and make like if i lived my life uh in canada only ever like uh, and had never been elsewhere uh this would be my home and maybe I would like that instinct to try and like always build a relationship w with like people and try to find common ground and speak their language and like do all that stuff would have never been there because I would have always known that Canada is my home and like I've got a place to be at but it is a constant sense of identity cri identity crisis and like feeling like I didn't have a home throughout my childhood life that I think sort of instilled that instinct in me. Absolutely. Um, Maz, you mentioned how how you feel like your experience might have been different a little bit or your, your that need that you feel to find a common ground and find a connection might have been different if you were born and raised here. Yeah, no, l let me unpack that a little bit about like why I feel like this was a need for me. I'd love that. I was, I'm Indian. Uh, my parents are Indian. I was born in Saudi Arabia and I lived the first few years of my life in a very like Indian community in Saudi Arabia going to a school that was run by the Indian embassy and so it was like always like a very Indian bubble in an Indian environment and and Saudi Arabia is not like a, a country like Canada where you can just get citizenship and you can become Saudi right like for to be a Saudi the definition is very uh, very narrow, very exclusive. Like you need to be Arab. You need to be born to Saudis, and and so even though I was born there, uh, to Indian parents, and I lived there for so many years, I was never considered anything close to a Saudi. Like I spoke uh, Arabic, not like like fluent Arabic, but like even if I did, like my uncle does. My uncle spoke speaks fluent Arabic. He was born there. He's lived there for. 25, 30 years, he was never seen as a Saudi. He was seen mm -hmm. as the Indian foreigner. Even though he was born there and everything. Yeah, even though he was born there. So, now I'm Indian. I've lived there. I've, I, was, I was born there and I lived there. And I can't identify as a Saudi. I can also not really identify as an Indian because I've never lived in India. I was never born in India. So when, I, when we would go back to India for a vacation, um, I was the foreigner kid. I was the kid that came from Saudi Arabia. Um, I was the kid that was not really Indian. Uh, so in India, I was not feeling like I was home. In Saudi, I was feeling like I was not home. I was like a foreigner in both countries. So the question became like, who am I? Like, wh what what is my homeland? And and I, and and that sort of gave rise to this instinct of, okay, like wherever I went, like, in that little interaction, I wanted to be home. In that little intera interaction uh, with people, I wanted them to see me as like not a foreigner i wanted them to be able to relate to me and mm -hmm. and and so like that's where like speaking their language and like trying to like uh trying to be trying to like be relatable to other people sort of kicks in and and coming to canada was so great because i was i could be all those things and still be canadian mm -hmm. at the same time yeah. uh, and and i think that truly speaks like a lot about all the all the good about what is to be Canadian and that speaks to why Canada is so amazing because I could be I could be a Muslim and still be Canadian I could be a person that like lived in the Middle East and I could still be Canadian I could be of Indian heritage and I could still be Canadian I could be all those things and still be fully 100% Canadian um, and I think uh, like and like uh, we can talk more about this but the motivation for me to be involved in politics. I was going to ask, yeah, is was, that why? Was to sort of to fight to uphold that inclusive definition uh, of what it means to be Canadian, because that like that that is really what makes Canada Canada. I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I agree. During the Stephen Harper years, uh, 
I started to feel like I remember a time when I started questioning if I was really Canadian because like the overwhelming rhetoric of the government was very divisive. It was about it like this whole like notion of old stock Canadians and mm-hmm. new Canadians, immigrants versus mm-hmm. real Canadians and then mm-hmm. and that like manifested itself in like true policies, like actual government policies where they created like two tiers of citizenship. One was mm-hmm. like there was a different set of rules for mm-hmm. Canadians who were born in Canada and a different set of citizenship rules for Canadians yeah. who became naturalized. Or even, or even things like estate taxes and, and the way they did that, right? Yeah. Where immigrants are going to yeah. have those. And yeah. And uh, like there was this whole like they implemented something called the Barbary Cultural Practices Act, which was uh, w- which was for them a way to sort of uh, target like practices that are already illegal in Canada, like forced marriage and like uh, a child marriage. It's like those are all illegal mm-hmm. already. But it was like sort of like a dog whistle way to say, yeah, like all your cultures are like sort of not welcome here. Uh, even we, though like, your no, cultures are barbaric, yeah. Yeah, like your cultures have like barbaric elements to it. Meanwhile, like quote unquote white culture is like more civilized and more um, sort of compatible with Canadian society. Almost saying we have a way of living and we want you to adhere to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like that that sort of feeling of identity crisis coming back uh, for me to start questioning after like having immigrated to Canada in like 2000, 2001 and feeling so joyful when we got our Canadian citizenship. Like our family like cried tears of joy mm-hmm. when we when we knew we were going to be we were we were going to become canadians when we were approved and like i remember the day when we went to our citizenship ceremony in mississauga like we all wore suits i wore my dad's suit it was really badly fitting and <laughs> a giant you guys have probably seen that photo yeah. on facebook and uh it was such a great like moment like we finally could call ourselves as we could identify as something and there was no contradictions and 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 to see that being challenged again like 10 years later or eight years later back in like between 2011 and 2015 roughly uh, where all these like laws and things were coming out it was just like i was in a sort of existential self-questioning about who i really was and and uh and that was truly the reason why i I got involved because I, i thought we could do better as a country i I love that, and I think you hit the you hit the nail on the head in terms of the crux of what it means to be Canadian too. I think, and and I hope I should say the majority of people, at least at least the majority of people that listen to this podcast, <laughs> um, to to the majority of people in Canada, because I think for me, um, I can identify with the immigrant struggle, having my parents uh, be immigrants and and hearing secondhand, but I will not even I'm not going to insult anybody by saying that I have even close to a lived experience of it because I don't I, I, I grew up very privileged to have been born here to to have parents who were willing to take the biggest risk of their life to, to give me that opportunity so I'm not going to say identify with that but what I will say is that the crux of what you said is what makes Canada Canada and I think that's what makes it a welcoming place for people and it, and so I see that that's why you got into politics uh, to kind of support that and keep that that environment of inclusion around for people. What I was going to ask is, how did your parents feel when you went into politics? Because when I was younger, I, I know my parents, like I said, are also immigrants, but there's a very specific view on politics as a career. I don't think immigrants see it as like a viable path or an particularly, I don't want to say honorable, but a particularly desirable path, let's say. How did your parents feel about that? They were caught off guard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like pursuing my CFA designation at the time. Oh boy! Uh, I was like full out like economics, corporate finance. Uh, like that was my direction in career and life. Uh, yeah. And the two years at the student union were like a way to get like good work experience and like some relevant skills i remember my dad always like emphasizing to me like make sure like you can get some kind of transferable skills and like 
he always wondered why I didn't go for VP operations and finance <laughs> instead of VP internal, uh, which was like more of a student facing, like student programming uh, portfolio. Uh, but that was sort of like where I was headed. So when I sort of started telling them about these interviews and that I might end up in Ottawa working for a minister, it was like they were caught off guard, but they were also like not sure what that meant because and like still to this day, I explaining to my relatives like my parents now fully get what I do. Um, it it took a while, so and you've it, been doing it for a while. Yeah, uh, but like to this day, to explain it to my relatives back in India or Saudi or wherever they are about like what my job is and what I do, it's so difficult because like n- we have like no uh, like understanding. Like th- we know nobody in our whole extended family or friend circles that was in- involved in politics, right? Like I'm right. like the first one that like is doing this. So, and I'd, I'd say even as, as an extension, being a politician means vastly different things yeah. here than it does in other countries. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and for sure. And, and so I think like people come to, people come to it with preconceived notions, especially like those of us from India, like being a politician there is like means something like I think people think about the corruption associated with yeah. politics in India, bribes, payoffs, um, and yep. like the entitlement and like all those mm. things, and how uh, for the most part, like we don't really see that in in Canada, and and I think that comes as a surprise. In getting them on board with what you're doing, is it often about saying, like, do you often have conversations where the motivations behind what you're doing come into play here? Because I heard the I want to be in politics. Um, A motivator is like keeping that definition of Canada and and keeping it to be that diverse, inclusive environment where you can be multiple identities and still be Canadian. Is that important to them as well in hearing you say that and your motivation behind it because it connects a bit of um, cultures together? I think the motivations are important, but initially... Like w- when I first uh, made that transition into uh, to Ottawa, it was to sort of reassure them that look, th- the job was like more or less a normal mm. job. I was gonna be paid. I would sit in an office and do work, <laughs> and like to sort of like huh. explain the mystery behind what politics is, and sort of to demystify it, and like and like explain that look, like it's not very different from mm. from a regular office job. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely more sustainable and uh, w- I was looking for a word like consistent than than they thought, I guess. Uh, when I said to them I was going to be working in like parliamentary affairs, uh, in politics in Ottawa uh, on Parliament Hill, uh, it that's very mysterious. Like, what does that mean? And so when I would say, look, I like I'm going to go to the office and like these are the projects and these are the topics I'm working on and like I need to prepare. Mm. briefing notes and documents and blah 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 and this and it was like more understandable so like sort of demystifying uh, it was important yeah explaining the motivations of it was important but also brown people tend to not be so like idealistic we tend to be very practical people right yep. like and like, like when you when you tell your parents yeah like mom and dad i want to like do all this good stuff uh the reaction is like great maybe do that on your free time hundred <laughs> um, percent. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but if I can say like, oh, hey, mom and dad, I want to do this good stuff, but it also is gonna like pay I'm my bills. Paid. I will be in the office and blah blah blah. Like, and then lastly, what I think eventually made them fully on board with, with what I was doing is being able to tell them about the results of what I was mm. being able to accomplish. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I don't have as much perspective that you're talking about, um, but something, I said this on the last episode, actually, my mom has told me to not do most of what I have done in my life because, and it comes from the place of that anxiety of if I fail, that she, like, she will just be so upset for me. It's, like, very much like, oh, I have to support her. I just want you to be able to support yourself um, and it comes from a place of anxiety and because she had anxieties with money and instability throughout her life. Um, and so when she hears sort of like a higher risk position that she doesn't have clarity into what that actually means for me, she's like, well, don't do that. Get the office job at the company for 30 years that you can then like build up a reputation. Just like put your head down. Don't cause a ruckus. Like even the first time I worked from home 
in my current job, she was like, you haven't worked there long enough. You haven't proved yourself. Like you could get fired as her is what is what she's hearing in that. Like she's so stressed out about rocking the boat because if you get fired, then you don't have an income. Like it's so anxiety focused. And I have to convince her like, oh my goodness, it's okay. Like I'm going to be okay. So it's just, I don't have the perspective of a bit of the the culture side of it, but I definitely have the perspective of like the anxieties from a parental influence of like, you have to do this in order to be, make money to have a life. Like that's the bottom line. Here I can transition into why brown people don't get involved in politics. <laughs> oh, okay, I like it. I think what you just said is like, just like the story of my life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because our, our culture, like yeah. Ashe would, can relate, are like all about... And I don't know where it comes from. Maybe it comes from, like, uh, having lived under British occupation in India and, like, like always being sort of uh, less superior and, like, always, like, struggling to make ends meet and, like, things being uncertain. But the idea of predictability, mm-hmm. uh, low-risk approach, stability. Uh, stability, sustaining incomes... Uh, like all those things are such a fundamental part of like how brown people go about career uh, how about how brown people go about like education uh, and careers like if, it's a, it's a joke but we like we, we always talk about how brown people are like doctors or accountants lawyers or lawyers or engineers uh, but there's a, that's the reason yeah those are all decently paying like pretty, lots of jobs yeah there's lots of jobs they pay decently well and you get uh, if you get those letters behind your name you have a floor you have an yeah. income floor you're not making less than a certain amount yeah. yeah um and like they're they are relatively stable because society will constantly need these professions and there is a decent amount of job security um so for politics is not one of those things it's not but, any of those things yeah um there is very little job security uh the pay isn't uh, that great and uh, and and so it tends to be a field where immigrants especially from those countries in Canada don't like normally by default get involved in and and uh, and so like for me to do it was sort of un, I would say a quote-unquote unnatural or like a little radical for uh for folks in my family and like not that they didn't support me they they did uh but it was still like a very new thing and uh and like now that i'm in ottawa and like i I see around me i see a lot of white people that is a fact that's like not a an opinion i'm uh i'm putting forward and there's not a whole and i've noticed that there's like not a whole lot of like uh i think there's i think especially when it comes to South Asian communities, there is a sort of disconnect between the the amount of impact that they can have and them not fully realizing it. Uh, and, and I think it would be great to have more people from diverse communities be involved in professions that event- effectively represent Canada. We, we need to make our politics and our government more representative of the people of the country that we are representing and I uh, there there needs to be like more understanding of like how much you can accomplish and the rewards associated with it um as a sort of as a countermeasure to the desire for stability and like good pay etc not sure how we can get there but like that's just my thought Ooh, rolling those R's. Okay, three, two, one, action. <laughs> um, back from our power nap. Just kidding. That's what I want. Um, hopefully this big talk, small summaries that we're just rolling right into. We've had a pretty hefty episode so far, and we recognized the potential for it to go on for another six hours. So we thought we would uh, cut it off and hopefully listeners have some prompts in their network to continue some of these discussions because i think a lot of what we've talked about today 
is only the start of some of these things in like at least my own context. Like I just so enjoy having these conversations because it's, it's very stimulating. Um, but in the big talk, small summaries, I thought since we've talked a lot about like some shared experiences, the, the growth that we've had as humans, some of the values we hold dear to our heart that contribute to the motivations we have for uh, what, why we do what we do, where we've gotten to in life. So potentially the big talk, small summary, that word or a phrase, and looking at the self-reflection we've had from our discussion today, is there anything in our own environments, whether it being personal, cultural, um, political, things like that, that we might say a word or a phrase that's a bit more critical of our experiences that might help either push the agenda forward to, to have some transparency or or it may just have do the job of, of having those discussions after this podcast is over. So with that in mind, that stage set, does anybody have some brilliance? Great question. I think this was a really wonderful conversation to have with you both. I think... Oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> I, no, like, I, I know this was like a podcast, but like we have a lot of these like one-off chats all like at parties and like whenever we hang out but i think this is like a good like structured way to sort of encapsulate a lot of the important things we generally talk about all the time and and like it was good to sort of see um everything sort of come together and i think as a concluding uh, reflection of what we talked about the way the takeaway for me is that I think we can all agree that there is, when it comes to visible minorities and immigrants and diverse marginalized groups, that there is like challenges. There are structural challenges. There is, as I should put it, a vicious cycle of challenges that people face and then policies and structural issues that are then imposed on, uh, if I can use the word imposed, on the people and then they face the challenges and like it repeats over and over again. And I think my takeaway is that there are things that all of us can do and it's and i think it's wrong to for people to say oh yeah you like immigrants you need to like work harder do better um and i also think it is wrong for us as immigrants to to say well like the system should just change on its own to like make it better for us i think the if i could come up with a takeaway phrase i think it it would be let's all meet in the middle and uh, let's all do our bit. And I know that sounds like really high level and like abstract, but just like a 30 second way of explaining that would be, yes, policies need to be changed. And yes, like uh, people that are in positions of power need to examine how they can do better uh, to sort of represent correctly their stakeholder, their electorate, their citizens, their community and they need to make more of a conscientious effort. Allies need to think about, hey, like more than just like arguing from a let's be better point of view, like let's also make like smart and uh, arguments and like rational arguments for those who might not care about inclusion diversity. But like I think there's an argument to be made for how it is in your self-interest, how it is in the self-interest of a company, of a country, to have diverse voices because it will, not only is it a good thing to do, it is a smart thing to do for profits, for success of a nation, for success of governments, for minorities, for marginalized groups and uh, immigrants, etc. I think, I think there is something to be said for getting out there, getting involved in in like avenues that may not come naturally to us. Uh, whether it's in activism, whether it's in government, whether it's in politics, uh, etc. I think like do things, like if you feel strongly about it, um, uh, if you feel strongly about it, and you like you you find yourself talking to your relatives and friends in your communities at your dinner tables about it, it is definitely worth pursuing that and trying to do something of it, um, and and don't be afraid of of the insecurity that like our older generations might warn us about because our country is only as, as good as the people that are involved in uh, in making it better right so th i think that that is my overall takeaway that was great that was huge i really yeah. like that one i like that one a lot 
Um, I, I, I have a takeaway, and this is something that I want to challenge myself to do, and it kind of builds off of what you said, Maz, and I want to <coughs> then extend that challenge to other visible minorities and, and marginalized communities. And this is going to... I don't want this to be taken out of context because it sounds like I'm pushing the burden of responsibility back onto those communities. Um, but I think I think to create buy-in on them, they, the part of the, it has to be a shared responsibility, which is a lot of what you alluded to. And so my takeaway or my message in being critical would be, uh, would be to embrace the long-term and embrace the macro. And part of doing that is embracing the risk. Uh, and so a lot of what we talked about is how a lot of immigrant communities, because of the incredible risk they've taken and the incredible undertaking they've taken to, to do an immigration of that nature, they've already taken on a lot of risk. Um, and so I understand where the kind of the, the safety, I minded to ask, the risk averseness comes from. What I would say is that uh, we need to, when you're, when you're taking a risk averse approach, it's at a very micro level. You're, you're reducing risk for yourself and your income and your, and your potential career path, et cetera, et cetera. Where I would say is that if we could take a more macro approach and think longer term and think about transformative risks, such as greater taking a risk uh, in, in a transformative way, such as what you're doing, and bec becoming a visible minority, that's a representation in politics, right? In, and, and think more macro in that, sure, on a micro level, it's a little bit more of a risk for me to have, quote unquote, an unstable income or in a career where my job is more tied, such as politics, is tied to uh, external events. Uh, but in the long run and for my community and for a macro set of people, it could really fundamentally change the way our country functions on a go-forward basis. And I find that our communities are often hesitant to do things like this because of the risk, uh, the personal risk involved. Uh, so I, I, that would be my takeaway is, is a challenge essentially to, um, and I don't want to be insensitive to the immense risk they've already taken doing the immigrant experience, but take on uh, some more of that macro shared responsibility, that shared risk. And, and I'm not saying just go willy-nilly with it in, in areas that can be transformative, like politics, mm -hmm. I think is a great one. I think that's a very good nuance you've added to that. And I think I, I absolutely agree about the, we, we can't be blind to the fact that a lot of people that come here, uh, immigrants that we are sort of talking about as some people that uh, we think we should get more involved. In many ways, they, f they may feel that like a lot of the large risk has already been taken and we need to sort of like find our way, find a way to like stabilize ourselves. So that, I, uh, that is very valid. Thank you both for that, that was great. I was struggling here to come up with something that came from my own context of uh, having parents and generations before that live in Canada for most of um, everybody who's alive's memory, um, but also myself growing up in Canada and not being a person of color, what I would say here. The takeaway I think I would say is take inventory. So you can get so lost in the blinders you have on of your current context if you haven't flexed outside of it and you only know the old stock Canadian. Like if that's the only lens you've lived then yeah, okay, you haven't really taken inventory of your impact on like what it is to be Canadian. So I think just if you come from a place of privilege or if you come from a place of um, I only know this is the current context, I think you should take inventory to then try and flex that to go into places that and take those risks to say, okay, I've never actually experienced this part of the country or this part of the community around me. I'm going to actually test out and see what it looks like. That would be my takeaway. I think our all three of ours go really nicely together in the so meet too. in the middle, accept yeah. some some risk and take inventory. Like let's get the t shirts made. And I speak I think it speaks to the theme of of Canada is our home and it's all of our responsibilities to make it a better place for everyone to live. Oh my god. I'm getting emotional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's the theme. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, Danny has was born and lived here, comes from a Caucasian Anglo Saxon like type of background, you are white, we're both brown. Ashay is visible minority, but born here. I'm a visible minority who immigrated. And I think we are in equal, like equally as proud of being Canadian. Um, and like while some of us also have simultaneous other sort of cultures um, and identities and like lived experiences that like forms who we are, 
But at the end of the day, I think uh, in many ways, we, are, we consider ourselves equally as Canadian. And I think that in itself is what makes Canada so unique. Um, that may, I don't think many other countries can say about their national uh, identity. I think that is what's unique about our Canadian national identity. And I think we ought to be working constantly to sort of preserve that and to fight for that inclusive definition of what it means to be Canadian. I love it. I love it. What a note to close on. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you, on this little podcast we have. Moz, it's been an incredible time, as always, talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or feedback, you can shoot us an email by emailing fsmalltalk at gmail.com, reach out to us on Instagram at fsmalltalk, or visit our website, fsmalltalk.com. We wanted to give a big thank you to our lovely and talented friend Ada for the musical considerations. She's an amazing up-and-coming independent recording artist specializing in R&B, pop, and funk. She's available for collabs and shows, so if you liked what you heard, simply hit her up on Instagram, at AdaSoLive. That's at A-I-D-A SoLive. If you want to hear more of her stuff, you can find her at soundcloud.com forward slash AdaSoLive. That's soundcloud.com forward slash A-I-D-A SoLive. She's amazing, so definitely go check her out. A big thank you also goes out to Lonnie for producing the awesome track you heard. He is an R&B and hip-hop producer who's worked with major artists, including Drake, Beyonce, and Lil Wayne. He's available to work with at his Toronto studio, so if you're interested, simply check him out on Instagram at HitHouseToronto. That's at HitHouseToronto. So again, big thank you to Ada and Lonnie. This podcast was brought to you by us. And also beer. And also coffee. Because what is sleep even? Also, hi mom. Love you.